Okay, welcome to the first podcast I ever recorded, uh, but what will probably be episode three or so in this first batch that I release. I originally wrote this as an essay on intellectual honesty in COVID-19, but later decided to record it and expand into other topics. It's not meant to be a persuasive piece or change anyone's mind. Uh, if I convince anyone of anything, I hope that it's just that not everyone who disagrees with you does so because they're evil or totally ignorant. I tried to work through this in two main parts. Uh, the first main part, focusing on mask mandates and society's response as a whole, and the second, focusing on shutdowns and the effect on business, both big and small. Uh, so when I wrote this, it was yesterday that Governor Abbott had announced Texas would reopen and remove the mask mandate. Uh, it's been probably two weeks now since then. Uh, I've been pretty busy, so I haven't gotten to sit down and record what I wrote for a little while here. But when that happened, I was not surprised at all to find that I was the only person I know who was pleased with the decision to be given some freedom of choice back. I became silent on the issue of COVID-19 almost exactly one year ago, following a conversation I had with a friend. I expressed some concerns I had over CDC reporting practices, as outlined on the CDC's website, and the response I was met with was, uh, was extreme outrage. Um, my main concern was when I went to the CDC website to get more information, because I, like most of us, knew nothing about this new emerging thing. It said on the website it had reported deaths, and it was reporting presumed deaths. So I went down and read the asterisks on presumed deaths, and uh, what I got to was the CDC, on their own page, said that a presumed death that was being reported was any death in which the person who died had any symptom of COVID-19. So that means if you had diarrhea and you died, if you had a cough and you died, if you had a runny nose and you died, presumably by that information, you would be reported as a COVID-19 death. So that was concerning to me just to read it. I, I thought that there was possibly some flaws in the way that we were going to approach this thing. It was super early, but it, it just seemed like a concerning way to approach data. So the conversation ended with my friend saying, I hope you get COVID-19 and a doctor refuses to treat you. I haven't spoken publicly about COVID-19 since then. Until now, really. And I should add, this friend had personal reasons for being emotionally charged on this subject. And I'm certainly not without guilt in our interactions. Uh, we butt heads a lot, uh, don't interact in the healthiest way, and I'm certainly guilty of having my own outbursts when we're trying to talk over one another. What concerned me was not an outburst among friends, but rather the fact that these sentiments seem to be everywhere and growing intensity instead of returning to calm and reason. Understanding we're all prone to bias, uh, including myself, I'm going to break this first part into two subparts. Uh, in the first part, I'm going to focus on the very limited science that's out there and on some analysis of the data and theories out there. 
Uh, and then second, I'll venture into philosophy and personal perspective. So getting into the analysis, being honest, I am yet to see a slam dunk on either side of the mask debate. Uh, I, I just don't see it out there. Uh, I have seen a deliberate attempt to suppress one side of the debate in favor of a more popular theory, but I haven't really seen a slam dunk on either side. If you Google the words studies supporting and refuting masks, uh, you will only find articles supporting the wear of masks. And you will find mostly articles, not studies. A lot of these articles will use vague language to say things like studies show uh, and not really reference any numbers or anything like that. Uh, just after it was suggested that we wear masks, the studies have shown that was a good idea. If you go to DuckDuckGo, uh, and for those of you who don't use it, I highly recommend using DuckDuckGo as a search engine. Uh, you can use it as an app. You can also just go into your phone if you have iPhone or I think the same thing if you have uh, Android. Um, you can go in and just change your preferred uh, search engine. So right now, if you type a search in the top of the bar in your Safari or whatever your, your browser is, it automatically searches through Google. Um, you can change that preferred engine so it automatically searches through DuckDuckGo. I prefer it. They don't curate the information that comes to you, or at least they don't appear to. Uh, and, and I did fact check myself today um, with the Google. I Googled those exact words again. Um, obviously, I did it the first time I wrote this also. And it's still, you know, uh, same curation of information. Anyways, when you go to DuckDuckGo and search the same phrase, it'll actually give you a mix. So you're going to see uh, studies and articles from both sides of the issue. Uh, one of the links brings you to 10 articles that claim to show that masks are ineffective, along with some charts that show the number of cases following mask mandates and the charts seem to imply that there's no correlation between mask mandates and infection rates, right? So they're like, oh, there's a mask mandate here, but look, the infection rates go up after the mask mandate. See, uh, but that's hardly conclusive. Many factors are in play here and parsing out mask with lockdowns, you know, mask mandate with a lockdown versus a mask mandate without a lockdown versus masks in an area with frequent gatherings. Um, it's impossible with the given information. Uh, so hardly anything conclusive or even convincing to me there. But of the 10 studies, uh, one thing that I noted, nine were conducted in the COVID era. And that's something that I've noted on all these. When you go to Google, it's a lot of stuff that has been conducted post-COVID the one article that stood out to me is an article that was done in, or sorry, not an article, a study that was done in 2015 for the British Medical Journal. So this is pre-highly politicized COVID era, uh, and that's why it stood out to me. I didn't see anything else that, that was done during the pre-COVID era, so I kind of gravitated towards that article. And I'll drop the link in the comments and uh, attach a copy of the essay if I can. That way you can see all the other links and any uh, graphics that I have in there. But I encourage you to read the article or read the study and judge for yourself. Uh, my takeaways were uh, compare the study compared a mass group 
uh, a medical mask group, a cloth mask group, and a standard practice control group. Uh, and the control group, it says, may or may not include mask use. And reading through that, it seems to imply that they go by hospital policy, probably based on patient type and clinician choice uh, for this type of patient. It's uh, a clinician would choose to wear a mask at this time and this type of mask. The masks, the medical masks, were the safest group, followed by the control group, where sometimes they weren't wearing masks. And finally, the consistent wear of the cloth, cloth mask was the least safe. Looking through the article, uh, the best estimate they had was that the cloth masks maybe are 3% effective. And, and so this is where I would make one point. If COVID is so highly infectious that it warrants the fear that we have of it right now, that 3% is negligible, right? If I'm getting a 97% dose of something that is, from what I can tell from the fear of it, just the most infectious disease that's ever come to the face of this earth, um, 3% might as well be 0%. It's, a, it's statistically negligible defense against such a highly infectious disease. Would be my point, but again, uh, judge for yourself. Read through the article, uh, uh, see what conclusions you come to. Again, it's the only one out there, so it's it's hardly a slam dunk on either side here. In 2020, the authors added a note regarding the wear of cloth masks. Right, so it's interesting to note that by their own estimation, they're the only study that has ever been conducted on this subject clearly pre-politicization so it, it says uh, i'm quoting here as authors of the only published randomized controlled clinical trial of cloth masks we have been getting daily emails about this from health workers concerned about using cloth masks so you know they were the only study out there and they're getting these emails asking well should i there's a mask shortage should i wear a cloth mask uh, their advice was some health workers may still choose to work in inadequate PPE. So again, inadequate PPE. Uh, in this case, the physical barrier provided by a cloth mask may afford some protection, but likely much less than a surgical mask or a respirator. Again, you know, circling back to, so maybe you're getting a, a 3% barrier there, but in the case of COVID, I would say that's negligible. But more importantly, this leads to my concern over the conflation of hypothesis, theory, and fact. So good science it begins with a hypothesis based in sound logic. Uh, it progresses to a theory as these hypotheses are, hypotheses are tested and revised. Bad science skips these steps, and it says, my statement is based in seeming logic, and therefore it must be fact. I've heard people talk about masks using the hydrant theory. Uh, we're capping a fire hydrant that sprays these particles out everywhere, so we're protecting others. And we're capping our intake valve, so we're protecting ourselves. Uh, that doesn't really uh, seem logical to me. Call me crazy, but put a t-shirt over a fire hydrant and a washcloth over your mouth, wrap your lips around the fire hydrant, and do you really trust that t-shirt and washcloth enough to uh, turn the nozzle? 
it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, with, with what we know about the spread of virus and the particulate size, uh, it, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. It seems more like what in weightlifting we call bro science. Uh, and this is where uh, you ask somebody, man, you've been getting some great gains. What have you been doing? And then this bro who's never really read the label of his supplements and definitely never taken a biology class in his life gives you his best estimation of what's going on biologically. And, and this provides for you a useful template so that you can apply some causality and attempt to duplicate his results, right? And it might work out for you. Um, somewhere in there, something he's doing is working and you may be able to replicate it and it might work out for you. But it's hardly more than a vague hypothesis of what's actually going on and, and how you're accomplishing something. So two more statements uh, I've encountered that I'll quickly touch on before moving on. One is I was uh, is dealing with herd immunity. I was presented with an article claiming that the idea of herd immunity was stupid, that vaccines will get us to herd immunity. So I should say the idea of naturally acquired herd immunity was stupid. Vaccines will get us to our herd immunity much faster. Uh, and here's the math. So I had two questions about that article. Uh, is this comparing vaccination to naturally acquired immunity in closed or open society? And where is the data on doing both concurrently? The article treated naturally acquired immunity and vaccination as if they were two mutually exclusive things that could not coexist in the world. Uh, herd immunity can be acquired through both natural and vaccination means. It's not just one or the other. So make sure that you're questioning the validity and the relevance of the ar arguments that you're, you're being presented with. Uh, that was hardly a relevant argument to say, oh, well, the idea of naturally acquired herd immunity is invalid because vaccinations could get us there faster when compared side by side as mutually exclusive ideas. Sure, but it seems pretty logical that both done concurrently is the fastest way to get us to uh, full herd immunity. Circling back to the first conversation that I ever had about COVID, one piece of enlightening information that the individual did bring up was that the total death rate at that point, March of 2020, was increasing from previous years. So more people were dying of something. I asked him for his sources. I looked into them. The data seemed legitimate. And so this created some concern for me. So I started to research the issue deeper. He also claimed that the deaths were associated with pneumonia at a high rate, which was not a surprise for me. That's nothing new. I found upon reach researching this stuff that the increase really wasn't a mystery. Death rates have been expected to rise on par with what we're seeing for some time now. I have a link in my paper that I'll drop in the comments, and if I'm able, I'll drop the full paper in there. If you click on it, it'll bring you to our world data and show you death rates, you know, trending from years past to current and then projections into the future. And one thing that you might be inclined to say looking at that link is, well, this link is from 2020 in the post-COVID world, so of course we would expect rates to rise. But actually, this data 
was being predicted as early as 2015. So when I looked this stuff up, it was at the very beginning and the charts I was looking at were actually from 2015, 2016. Um, and I screenshotted them on my phone because I suspected that a lot of that data would be removed from the internet. I could already see the, the anger and hatred around questioning any narrative on this subject. So again, I encourage you to draw your own conclusions, but what I see looking at the data, and, and I, I have the screenshots in that paper, so if you're not reading, I would encourage you to, you know, if you're interested in this, scroll down and, and look through the data for yourself, the screenshots from my phone. I just copied and pasted them into this paper uh, for people to look at what I was looking at at the time. But what I see is that we've expected death rates to be increasing for some time, and they're expected to continue to increase and even accelerate. And the projections are that they will double by 2099. Uh, and those projections were made in the pre-COVID era. And if you look at the other stuff, that it is no surprise that respiratory infection is one of the major contributing factors to death. And I've got all these snapshots here from various sources, CDC, our world data, um, one of them from Wikipedia, which is kind of a laughable source, but I, I kind of like it as a source because it shows that, well, first of all, Wikipedia is referencing the World Health Organization, but it shows that in both of those, you know, it was not unpopular to understand that uh, respiratory disease was a leading cause of death before COVID in 2016. But nowadays, if you, you state that fact, uh, you're shouted down pretty quickly. So now, as if I haven't been controversial enough, I'm going to get into the philosophy part. And honestly, I think this is better done in open conversation. So I'm just going to take the approach of touching on some thoughts I have on some common notions I hear out there and try not to straw man this too hard um, without someone there to present the argument for the other side uh, and counterpoints. So on shutdowns and masks, I often hear them compared to seatbelt laws done in the interest of public safety. On that subject, I think it's important to ask two things. Is this based in well-founded science? And how do the upsides compare to the downsides? Uh, is it possible that shutdowns have some downsides that outweigh whatever upsides you do believe uh, are there as far as slowing the spread of COVID or any disease. I also heard recently someone say, I wear a mask and I use hand sanitizer and I haven't gotten COVID, so it must be working. And that's akin to saying, I wear my wallet on the right side and I haven't gotten hit by a car, so that must work. Or I wear a rabbit's foot and I've never been in a plane crash, so rabbit's feet must work. The truth of the matter is, I've been in close quarters with other individuals not wearing masks several times a week throughout this entire pandemic. Just being honest, and a lot of people are going to be really mad at me probably hearing that, but my family and friends are far less risk averse than it seems most people are these days, and we have not slowed or stopped our behaviors in any way. Uh, we don't use masks and, you know, I, I've been in plenty of situations where I can say, well, then masks must have nothing to do with it. The truth of the matter is 
Now, me telling that story, we have two studies with a sample size of one and absolutely no control for bias. So is either one of those really valid? It's not. Um, we got to kind of watch where we get our information from. There's a lot of social media scientists out there right now. When the shutdown or when the mask mandate was lifted, I saw a lot of places in the city of Austin signaling that they're still going to require masks. We don't care what the governor says. We are going to require masks because it's the right thing to do. A little bit ironic because uh, a lot of irony in this, actually. Uh, I just realized I used the word irony twice in this very short paragraph. Uh, and it's probably twice is probably not too much for what's happening here. So first of all, these places that are putting this out there are mostly restaurants and bars. So they're places that you wear a mask while you walk to your table. And then you take off that mask and you don't wear it the rest of the time you're there. Unless maybe you get up to go to the bathroom. A little bit ridiculous to say, ah, oh, look how great we are. We're going to continue to make people wear masks. The other thing that's ironic about it is a lot of these bars, for those of you who don't know, are, are open in Austin on a technicality. So bars were shut down. And they're still shut down technically. Uh, bars were shut down in the initial shutdown and a lot of businesses were suffering. And so what they did was they made a loophole where bars could open as restaurants. And all they had to do, they didn't have to, so a bar is designated as somewhere that uh, makes 51% of its revenue or more from the sale of alcohol consumed on premise. You know, So all bars had to shut down. And what the city did was basically say, well, you can define yourself as a restaurant and you don't have to do it based on last year's financials. You can do it based on next year's projected financials. So all bars can turn into restaurants, project that they're going to sell more food than alcohol this year and be open as a restaurant. And so the bars did open like that. And then what they started to do was just ring up a beer as a bag of chips or they would partner with a nearby food truck and they wouldn't actually sell any food themselves. They just provide a menu for the closest food truck down the street in their in their bar and call themselves a restaurant. So the fact that these places uh, that were happy to open in the COVID era rather than shutting down for the good of the Austin community have have gotten on this high horse and said, well, we're going to demand that people still wear masks. You know, maybe they should just shut down all, entirely uh, if that's really how they feel about it. Um, so there's a little bit of ridiculous theater going on here. One of the books I've been reading lately is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And one of the things it talks about is even experts are prone to bias. So we should first look to and trust scientists and medical professionals but we should never forget that they're human. They're subject to bias. They're subject to social pressure. They make mistakes. They have a desire to keep their job and not lose their reputation in this, uh, this day of canceling everyone. And also don't forget that less than 200 years have passed since bloodletting was a practice in the medical community. So... I'm not saying don't trust doctors. I'm not getting conspiratorial here. I'm saying it's not anti-science to ask reasonable questions, to follow up on things, and to seek to validate the information that you're getting. Finally, coming to my own generation, come off the soapbox. You know, Get off the high horse here. 
if the bravest act you've ever committed in your life is wearing a mask and staying home to watch extra Netflix, you're not a hero. And I don't think that you have the right to tell anyone else what their risk tolerance is and decide how they live their life. You know, my generation is one that didn't fight a world war, but still somehow fancies itself the greatest generation. Love to congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back for the easiest things. And I see a lot of people, this is, this is their war ground. It's a way to be a hero without really doing that much. If you want a really disgusting example, I put a link that I highly encourage people to watch here. Uh, it's a commercial uh, on YouTube. It's a Burger King commercial, and it encapsulates what so many people distrust about the true intentions of people who are passionate about masks. It just congratulates ourselves so hard for laying around on the couch, wearing a mask, and eating cheeseburgers. It's, it's quite disgusting. Again, I share these thoughts not as a protest of masks, but more of a stand in defiance of cancel culture. Certainly disagree with me. Better yet, form your own third opinion. But just remember that social pressure is not a valid substitute for science and reason debate. Suppression is never the path to liberty or justice. Seeing the flag of my nation burned in protests breaks my heart. On, a, on an emotional level, it's one of the most hateful things that I can witness. Uh, the American flag is a symbol of so much of what I hold dear. But for that very reason, I would never advocate outlawing flag burning. The First Amendment is first for a reason. It's there to protect speech that you don't like. It's not there to protect the speech that you like. It's there to protect the speech that we struggle to tolerate as emotional tribal animals. I'm adding a little afterward here to part one because a few things have happened between the time that I wrote this as an essay and recorded it. I actually had my first conversation about COVID since the first and last that I reference above. Uh, right after I wrote this, intending to record it, somebody approached me and directly asked my, a young man directly asked my opinion uh, on the governor opening things up. And, and he was struggling with some people in his life not agreeing with him. He, he was saying that he wanted to take the mask off and a lot of people were upset and surprised. And his, his view was that at some point we have to move forward and now seemed like the time to him and that he would still take certain actions out of respect for people that he cared about and still be careful and, and do what he thought was smart, but he thought that it was okay to go to Home Depot without his mask on. And a lot of people were really upset with him about that, just saying it in his private life. And I, I did have a very honest conversation with him. I told him where I stood. I told him, you know, in my job, it will continue to be policy and I will follow and enforce that policy. But in my personal life, this is where I stand. And I also will not be wearing a mask anywhere that doesn't require it. If a private business asks me to, then that's, that's their right. And if I want to shop at that store, then I'll need to wear that mask. And if I don't want to, then I'll have to find another store that's not requiring me to wear that mask. But I, I thought it was a little bit tragic that, uh, 
so many people out there are feeling like they have no one they can talk to or be open with uh, about these subjects. And, and hopefully, you know, we'll start to pivot here as a society and maybe open up and, and be honest with each other and be honest that we really don't know a whole lot. And it's a little bit ridiculous how freaking passionate we're getting about uh, some pieces of fabric. Another thing that I saw is uh, schools are trying to open back up now. Now that we've got some vaccines out there and, you know, the vaccine is uh, more people are getting vaccinated. And uh, one thing that was put out is that in light of new evidence, three feet instead of six feet is shown to be sufficient social distancing. Uh, and that's something schools are putting out because they want to get students back in the school and they're just not going to be able to fit them in if they insist on six foot social distancing. First of all, there's no new evidence. They don't provide any evidence. There's no new evidence out there. The The new evidence is the old evidence because if you remember at the very beginning, they were saying three feet and then everyone just decided, you know what, I'm a, I'm a warrior for a cause. I'm going to double it six feet. So now they're going back to the three because they want to get kids into school. And they're saying there's new evidence, but there's no new evidence. The only thing that's new is the latest political aim. That's their new evidence. Well, we want kids back in schools now, and so therefore three feet is safe, not six feet. Again, a little, a little bit ridiculous. I think that some critical thinking will hopefully snap some people out of the passion that they have for the subject. And with that, I'll transition into part two on the effects of shutdowns on business. Uh, I originally recorded this as a completely separate episode, but it was so much shorter I decided to combine the two. This was my second ever recording, and I used far fewer notes, so hopefully I sound a little more natural and comfortable behind the mic. Uh, before I get started... I'd like to point out, I'm going to be talking a lot about some of the bigger businesses like Amazon, Target, Walmart, and I just want to point out that I'm not trying to paint them as the villains in this story. Uh, instead, uh, a good analogy is a, a rigged sporting event. If, if referees are throwing a game in favor of one team over another, uh, it's not fair to be angry at the team that's winning as a result. They're just playing the game by the rules that were given to them. They're doing nothing wrong. Uh, it's really the referees that we should be holding accountable who are rigging the game in favor of one team or another. 2020 was a strange year for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of those reasons, the government came after some pretty big businesses in antitrust hearings, uh, if you remember from like around July 2020. But strangely, at the same time, some of those large businesses that were being brought in for antitrust hearings were named essential while small businesses were being forced to shutter up. Uh, and so what was the difference, first of all, between these big businesses that were named essential and the small businesses? As far as I can tell, the only difference was narrative. Uh, we're giving this narrative that people are supposed to stay at home, and so these big businesses that are able to either deliver to your door are enabling us to stay at home, or these big businesses with large supply chains are just able to be America's savior 
Uh, we can't live without them. They're absolutely essential, but all the mom and pop shops or anything else that you do in your daily life or that people do just to make a living, well, those things aren't essential. So what you wound up with was these giant businesses with tons of people still open and running, not only at full capacity, but increasing their capacity. And these small businesses where maybe a couple of people might gather in a store total being shut down and shuttering up. This is why I like to refer to our response to COVID as the airport security of health measures. Makes us feel good, it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but the first time that you accidentally get through the metal detector at the airport with a pocket knife and get all the way to your destination, you realize that anyone who really means us any harm has probably been caught long before they get to the airport, but everything that's done at the airport is really just nonsense to make you feel better. So now we have these giant corporations that are painted as our essential business heroes. Uh, and is it really reasonable to expect that the government will have a leg to stand on in going after these in any type of antitrust case or really following through with anything? It doesn't really fit the narrative of the necessary COVID shutdown, the essential heroes, and then all of a sudden we attack them for you know, antitrust law. Uh, I was reading an article earlier on this and the person claimed to be an expert in antitrust law and one of the things they were saying was that you must show that the company is a monopoly and that their actions have maintained that monopoly. And if I was the defense in this case, that would be my defense is our actions haven't maintained anything. What's maintained our monopoly throughout this year, if you claim that we have one, is government action. We haven't done anything to maintain that monopoly. Now, I want to be clear, I don't advocate breaking up these big companies. That's not the point of this, and, and it's not my stance. Uh, I'm just pointing this out to illustrate the uneven playing field and the privilege that is being extended to some of these businesses, whether they're asking for it or not. So what's happening with small businesses? We've all seen the shuttered up and boarded up buildings where small businesses used to be or buildings that were built with the intention of some business moving in and now nobody's there. If you do a little looking around online, you'll see there's been an explosion in small businesses selling on Amazon. Uh, there's been 60% growth, uh, according to the articles I'm seeing online, in small business sales on Amazon.com over 2020. So you have all these businesses who, for whatever reason, chose not to sell on Amazon in 2019, suddenly being forced online or forced to sell on Amazon in 2020. Now, I think it's great that Amazon is able to offer this life raft to these small businesses who may not be able to sell from a brick-and-mortar location in their state. But I don't think it's great that they're backed into a corner where they're forced to take that life raft or that life raft is their only option. Many of these small businesses are certainly lucky to have Amazon to turn to, but they'd be a lot luckier to have a government that wasn't rigging the game against them. Another article I was reading brought a, an interesting point to mind. Uh, they were talking about these businesses being driven to Amazon 
uh, some complaining of having to pay for prime delivery, uh, the response being that prime delivery is a voluntary thing that you pay into. It's not a necessity to sell on Amazon. Uh, my response to that would be, given the current narrative and the current situation, it almost is a necessity. Online sales are increasing because the people who would be buying at brick and mortar stores are either unable to because those stores are now closed or unwilling to because they're too afraid to leave their home to go to those stores. In order to stay relevant and compete with the local Walmart, which is open down the street from customers, these sellers have to be able to get goods quickly to customers to meet the expectation of that instant gratification that purchasing online is not much different from running to the store down the street. Again, Amazon's not at fault for any of this. They've invested billions in boosting these online sales of these small businesses, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that the playing field has been tilted heavily in their direction. Now, I think it's important to talk about how we got here. So how we got here started in March 2020 with uh, flattening the curve. Anyone remember talking about flattening the curve? It's a term we don't use anymore, uh, but still somehow we're dealing with some level of lockdown uh, across the country. Austin just the other day, I think, changed from a level four to a level three. So we're one level better than the worst now, I guess. At the beginning, when none of us knew anything about COVID, I was on board with flattening the curve. The idea of flattening the curve was this disease appears to be so infectious that everyone's going to get it. There's no avoiding that. And so deadly that hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. There's going to be bodies in the street. Shutdowns were meant to flatten the curve, meaning slow the spread, so that we could prevent unnecessary death and suffering by keeping hospitals from getting overwhelmed with patients. At a time when we thought this was possibly one of the most deadly diseases we'd ever encountered, the expectation was that we would shut down for about two months and let hospitals get ahead of the curve. Now it's a year later, we know that COVID is not nearly as deadly as we thought it would be, and somehow we're still at some level of shutdown almost everywhere. It seems to me the time has come for people to be allowed to decide for themselves what level of risk is acceptable in their lives. One last point uh, of skepticism that I would like to bring up. Uh, right now, some of these bigger companies are pushing Washington for a $15 minimum wage, and it's bringing them a lot of positive press, and they look really, really good champions of the little guy. But I'd like everyone to take a second and think about the timing of all of this. These big companies in competition with each other, they're already paying their employees $15 an hour minimum. Uh, and that's great. That's awesome that that competition has driven them to that place and that employees are able to benefit from that. That is excellent. But right now, small businesses are on their heels and they're reeling from shutdowns that they had no control over and regulations that came out of nowhere that these big businesses aren't having to deal with and are actually benefiting from. Imagine the death blow that a $15 minimum wage would deliver to all these small businesses that are struggling to stay alive as it is right now. 
Imagine telling every small grocery store that they have to pay their cashiers $15 an hour or every employee $15 an hour. Imagine a world like that. We may end up with all cashierless grocery stores. And that sounds great. I'm all for those cashierless grocery stores that are coming out, and I'd love every grocery store to be one. But I'd like us to get there in an honest way through honest competition not by rigging the system and destroying small business in this country. All right, that's enough to get all this out of my system. I am officially bored of talking about COVID, so I will come up with a new topic to ramble about in the next episode. If you want to reach out with questions, comments, content suggestions, or just get more involved, you can reach me at, to be honest, I may be wrong, all one word, at gmail.com. Or follow me on Instagram at tbh underscore I may be wrong. Thank you for listening. And remember, I may be wrong, but that ability to test ideas, learn, and grow is what makes this country great. So be honest, allow yourself to be wrong sometimes, and be fearless in the exercise of your rights.